Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In 1999, the walls of hell cracked, and fallen angels condemned to an eternity in the abyss were suddenly able to flee. With no choice but to come to terms with the decaying remnants of the paradise they helped create, these escaped fallen must now decide whether they will rebuild their masterpiece or burn it to a cinder. Hello and welcome to Demon the Fallen Fragments, a Demon the Fallen game set in Rochester, New York in the year 2001. This story features the character of Azoth, played by Tillman, Erichel, played by Rebecca, Brawlman, played by Adam, and Abathar, played by Slavic. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at twin underscore cities underscore VTM, on Facebook at Twin Cities by Night, and on Discord at Twin Cities by Night. Welcome back. Alright, Tillman, Azoth, much like Abathar, suddenly feels this pressure lift in the abyss. And he too feels a call towards the walls of the abyss, flying there as only an angel of the wind can. He discovers the crack. Through the crack, he feels with incredible intensity all of the emotions of humanity that he has long been denied. Slipping through as if he were a draft under a door, he flies through a storm of plague would be the only way to describe it. Locusts and flies, wads of feces, droplets of vomit and pus and blood swirl around, carrying with them all the suffering that disease brings, the regret of the dying, the loneliness and fear as they face their final moments. Azoth soars through a city of the dead, each in their own way lamenting the life that they had lost. He feels their pain. He feels some have indulged and fallen to their pain and seek only to spread it to the others around them. Memories form walls and bulwarks against the storm outside, but still Azoth flies on, ascending above the city through a membrane. On the other side of the membrane, the misery suddenly lifts. The storm is gone, and he descends to earth, flying free through the clouds dancing with leaves and flower petals, traversing across great savannas, whipping around mountaintops, feeling the air, feeling the sunlight in ways that only air can. He flies past city after city, great spires of stone, of glass. He flies towards one city in particular, a northern city on the northern side of a lake with one building that seems to pierce above the others. He whips down and around it through streets and alleyways, feeling the souls of mortals that he once loved and protected, having served as a guardian angel so long ago. He feels the ebb and flow of their lives. New lovers meeting for the first time. Old lovers ending their relationship in bitter, bitter acrimony. The breath of a child. He feels himself inhaled by a young man, overwhelmed with joy at the promise of a new beginning in a new country, safe 
from the horrors of his old country. He is exhaled and flies down the street to be inhaled by a young woman, saddened at the loss of a friend with whom she had quarreled. She exhales, and he finds himself flowing, flowing into a morass of sense and sensations, a busy, congested room. He feels himself inhaled by four people at once, exhaled by them almost as quickly, inhaled by an older gentleman, and exhaled as a guffaw of laughter. Overcome by the man's joy, Azoth then slips into the breath of a lonely man sitting at the bar, a man quite drunk. Azoth slips out of that man's breath, out of the building, and into an alleyway, and he slips into the final breath, the final inhale of a man dying. Azoth doesn't slip out of this man's body. He fills it. He feels himself spreading from fingertip to toe tip. He feels the agony, the burning pain in this man's chest. He feels the chill of this man's life at low tide, most of it spilled beneath him, leaking from the hole in his chest. The burning, itching hole. The burning seems to fade. The hole begins to close itself, and suddenly the body takes another deep breath, but again this time Azoth is within it and does not escape with the exhale. Slowly, Azoth begins to realize the sensations beyond the pain that this body is experiencing. The cold ground, pebbles and small stones against one cheek, the slightly awkward and uncomfortable twist of cloth around the body. Reflexively, Azoth coughs and coughs again and coughs and coughs, hacking, deep, brutal, body-racking coughs, until finally something comes up and out of this body's abdomen into the mouth. Something hard and uneven. Something tasting metallic, coppery, warm, wet, and war- warmer than it should be. Warmer than the mouth. What does Azoth do? Uh, I think Azoth is heavily confused. Surely this model must have called him for help, but help is done. Uh, so... He Azoth. tries to look around, look at this uh, arrow tip or whatever he has. He has ejected from this uh, from this body. Azoth spits, and a small lumpy metal object lands in front of his face on the ground. With a groan, Azoth starts to get up. This body heaving to its feet, a deep red stain spreads out across the front of the cloth. This body is wearing the noises of the city of a grand metropolis, assault Azoth's senses, battering him. The din of conversation, the honking of car horns, the noises of traffic. Somewhere nearby, buskers play loud music on, making noises that he doesn't recognize, but in patterns that he does. A wave of dizziness strikes Azoth. His eyes lose focus for a moment, and they come back in, and Azoth realizes he's not alone. What next? Uh, Azov looks around. Is there this feeling of not being alone? It's making him very uneasy. A small child, filthy, but with oddly clean clothing, is peeking out from behind some sort of artifact. There are wheels, black wheels, and the body of this artifact, probably some cart or carriage of some sort, is a very shiny red. This child's eyes are wide, 
and the moment it realizes someone is looking back, it turns and runs off into the night. From within, Azoth hears, no, not hears, feels, feels a voice. What? What just, where am I? What's going on? And then a moment later, Azoth feels this body's limbs moving without his command. The body, this girthy, clearly unhealthy mass, stumbles to a vehicle, to to one of these strange carriages nearby, a black one. And it, the hands go into the pockets. Azoth feels like some sort of weird passenger in flesh right now. The hands go into the pockets and pull out a set of small metal objects. One is inserted into the door by this body. The door opens. The body gets in, takes the seat, places his hand on this control wheel, maybe? Places the small metal object into an opening near the wheel and turns. Azoth hears and feels something come alive within this carriage. And the body starts to drive. What does Azoth do? Azov will silently marvel at the situation, take everything in that happens around him, the the flashy lights, the uh, flow of traffic, almost like the flow of the rivers. Azov doesn't see a river, but as the car moves, a, a, a word, it, it maybe a word, comes into Azov's thoughts. QEW? Azov isn't sure what it means, but somehow... It feels like that's where he is, on the QEW. After a few minutes of being in this carriage, this vehicle, another word comes to Azoth's mind. Audi. Azoth looks to the left, and there's a large lake, a large body of water. And this Audi continues to drive through the night. The body is seemingly on some sort of autopilot. I think Azoth... uh would be uh, heavily interested in the in the mechanical aspects of the car that he's and the car ride that he's witnessing and i think after some time he would try to uh, take control and try to find out whether the things that he suspects actually work as expected azoth extends his senses he feels a small part of him leave the body as a lingering breath not quite completely exhaled, and he feels his essence wrapping around the different mechanisms, flowing through the engine block, seeping into the transmission, curling through the suspension, and then he inhales, and suddenly he understands what this thing is. And he knows the QEW to be the road that he's on. And this other word comes into his head, Toronto. He is leaving Toronto. And as he looks out in front of him, time seems to stretch out and compress at the same instant. The lights of the night's highway begin to twinkle. And before he realizes it, he is once again soaring, soaring over paradise. He sees below him various human settlements. He flies through them as low as the wind can go. He feels himself carrying health to these mortals, banishing illness, bringing them news, sharing stories between family members, sharing messages from loved ones. He flies past laborers in the fields as a cool breeze, bringing them relief, a moment's rest from their toil. He flies around ponds, over small streams, 
and dances with waterfalls and rapids as he travels this beautiful, pristine landscape. He flies up, up into the clouds and then slams back into the body, in the car. Behind him, there is this wailing sound, piercing, screaming, lights, strange lights, lights of red and blue flashing through the Audi. A small voice in him, a voice, again, that he feels more than hears, whispers, pull over. Azov considers this for a little bit, but since the wailing just doesn't stop, he decides to do just that and stops the car on the side of the road. Shortly after he pulls to the side of the road, the wailing ceases, but the lights continue to flicker. Looking behind him, he sees bright lights, blinding, disorienting him. The, the blinking, the flickering, the red, the blue, flickering white, a white spotlight directly in his eyes. It's painful almost. A shadowy figure approaches, another light in its hands. There's a knock at the window. Azov follows an instinct and pushes a button. The window rolls down, and that voice again just says, Glove box. And the figure outside the window peers in, flashes the smaller light directly in Azoth's eyes. License and registration, please. I think Azoth is irritated. Excuse me, sir. License and registration. Again, the voice, glove box. Uh, Azoth fumbles for uh, what he considers to be the glove box. Almost on autopilot, he opens the glove box. A A stack of papers fall out onto the floor amongst them a small card azov just grabs it all hands it to the light and here sir have you been drinking tonight oh no i've been driving tonight the shadowy figure hands back most of the papers but keeps two it shines the light on the car and then shines it back into azov's face i'm gonna need you to step out of the car please sir all right and uh azov steps out the shadowy figure begins to resolve the moment azoth gets out of the car his eyes begin to adjust the man's uniform is mostly gray with accents of purple he has a purple tie the hat is unusual but it too is gray there are some shinier pieces on the man's uniform including one that has symbols on it that azoth understands our writing but doesn't quite understand what they mean the man before him very clean shaven Blue eyes, a deep scar on the right side of his face, looks at Azoth, looks at the license. That's what that is. That's the license. And then looks back at Azoth. And then the man's face cracks into a big smile. I love your products. Oh my God. I cannot tell you how useful they have been. I think Azoth is still trying to figure out the the silver honorary awards on this man and no, he, mr harper you have no idea these i mean let me tell you that male enhancement one that you got that is mm, that is perfect works every goddamn time i'm sorry i don't think i have dealt with you yet uh what's your what's your rank you you show the scars of battle surely you must have you must have uh fought and won for our cause right Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I served back in Iraq. Took a, well, Iraqi soldier, hand grenade, you know how it goes. 
But man, I, I would not have been able to get back on my feet without, you know, without your product line but between the protein and the male enhancement. I mean, I do the ginkgo biloba. I take the St. John's wort. I do it all, man. You are like, you are a savior. Yes. So yes, many indeed. of that my buddies. My position. <laughs> so many of my buddies love your stuff too, man. It is such an honor to meet you. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm humbled. Uh, I mean. Azoth exhales. And a small part of him flows into the man standing across from him. Azoth feels his essence spread delicately through the man's body, just probing. And then he notices it. The, man, the man's liver, corroding, damaged, falling to ruin. It's terminal, but the man doesn't know it yet. Azoth inhales his essence back into himself again and realizes that the man is still gushing about these products. What does Azoth do? Uh, please, uh, please listen to me. I, I can tell you, you cling to life very much, and surely you have, uh, you have done a lot for our cause. But you require healing. Oh, what are you talking about? I'm in great health. Oh man, you know th those multivitamins that you sell. I take those every day. No, last no. Last time what? I was at the doctor, See? he told me that I was like the spitting image of health. I could not be healthier. You mortals, you are short-sighted. Let me help you. What? What are you talking about? I think I would like to um, like get really up close in his personal space. Okay. You just um, step closer to him. Yeah, and like touch him uh, on his belly where his liver would be, and like almost hug him in a way, like soothing him, and trying to use my law of awakening specifically. I would like to try to heal him because. Well, that's what Azov did in the war and feels like continuing <laughs> because obviously this this man is a honorable fighter. Okay. Azoth steps up to the man who is still gushing about the products, puts his hand on the gentleman's stomach and pulls him in and the man tenses up and his hand goes for his gun. Sir, I'm going to need you to... And then he cuts off as he feels Azoth's power flow into him and he stops and he just gasps. <gasps> just gasps and then after the embrace ends he steps back doubles over and vomits this thick black liquid onto the roadside <coughs> what did you what did you do to me this is just a temporary temporary effect i've i've uh convinced your body to get rid of all that is poisonous and that has accumulated in you what are you talking about? <coughs> Surely you must be thankful. I mean... What poison? I don't even drink. I just use your products. Well, maybe you shouldn't. What? What is this even? This uh, ginkgo bilboa? Hey, you're, you're the one that sells this. What do you mean you don't... <coughs> maybe I was mistaken. He starts vomiting again, and then he passes out on the roadside. He just drops like a sack of potatoes. Azov uh, wonders whether he was mistaken and whether this man wasn't really a fighter after all. That weird voice that he feels suddenly intrudes upon Azov's thoughts. Put him in his car. Ah, yes, that, that is a good idea. Surely the, the man needs to be warm and the car has a heating system. Azov found that out. So he he grabs the policeman by by his uniform and kind of drags him uh, along. It's awkward. 
But after a few minutes of struggle, Azoth manages to get him back into the driver's seat. Azoth tries to find the button that turns off the the lights. The siren kicks back on. Oh boy, <laughs> that was the wrong one. And then different sirens kick on, different sounds start occurring, and different lights go on and go off, but eventually Azoth gets it to the point where the lights go off, and the car is silent except for the running of the motor. Surely the mortals could have done a better job at, at making these devices. The voice intrudes again on Azoth's thoughts. Home. We need to go home. Hmm. <laughs> Does Azoth understand what home means to he, this? No, he does, he does not. He uh, does not. I think Azoth would be enraged because there is no home for him. Okay. Azoth feels the voice cowering within him, but something tentatively is trying to move the limbs on this body, trying to pull it back towards the Audi. Azif gives in to that, to that call. The Audi is something he understands now. That, that seems like a good way to go. He picks up his uh, license and reg- registration that the man probably dropped on the on the ground because okay. apparently these are these are useful even though they seem to be fairly artificial and well of no real meaning right now without really being conscious of it azoth climbs back into the audi buckles up and resumes driving after a few minutes he realizes that he's heading to a place called rochester the thought just comes into his mind unbidden he's driving on a road that what's it called He thinks, and reaching through the recesses of the mind, he starts to flip through memories and thoughts that are not his own. Directions, paths of travel, ways of getting around, the names of street Culver and Dewey and Scrantum, A, B, C, D, Park, Monroe, the names of streets just pop into his head. One finally settles in the forefront of his thoughts. 490. He is driving on 490 approaching Rochester from the west. And he looks up at just the right moment, and he sees the city's skyline come into view. And the quiet voice that had been riding with him exudes an overwhelming sense of relief. And Azoth feels it sit back within him and rest. More of this body's memories begin to assault Azoth. Numerous illicit affairs business partners lied to products in boxes stacks of them in a storage space in a warehouse a well-appointed apartment people and places one group of people dirty artists maybe their hair in dreadlocks their clothing piecemeal colorful mismatched scavengers perhaps they stand out to azoth There are many memories of them, acknowledgments of loyalty, of dedication. As the city's skyline gets closer and closer, and the lights begin to become distinct, buildings become distinct against the night sky, Azoth realizes that what he's heading into, that what he's wearing, is something completely new to him, and fade to black. Brawlman in the abyss, surrounded by misery, wrath, pain, steeped in torment for thousands of years, suddenly feels the immense pressure 
of that misery and suffering lighten. And there's this strange freshness to the abyss. And whispers begin to spread of freedom. And like sand in the wind, Brawlman begins to drift closer and closer to the places these whispers speak of. He skitters across the presence of other fallen, like pebbles being blown across a stone surface. Finally, he falls through a crevice, a crack, dropping like a stone, falling, falling, through a storm of sand, whipping, polishing that stone, the heat of wrath, the dryness of abandonment, washing over him, buffeting him around. Shards of glass fly through this storm, metal filings ripping at the stone, scratching it. Those metal filings carry with them anger and hatred, deep, infectious hatred. Lightning strikes the stone, carrying through it severe joy, unconsciousness, and confusion. Suddenly the stone falls through something similar to surface tension on a pond. It drops through something that feels almost like water, but isn't quite water. Its descent slows. It bumps into something. What was that? It was squishy. It was warm. There was passion there. It bumps into another. That one was not as warm. There was passion, but it was fearful. The stone falls, bouncing. Suddenly realizes, Brahman, it strikes him. These are souls. He is bouncing through human souls and against human souls, trapped in a half-existence. From one to the other, he keeps falling, tasting their emotions, tiny fragments of curiosity, of joy, of shame. Suddenly, he falls through another membrane, another weird sort of surface tension sensation, and he feels the stars and the mechanisms of the celestial spheres. He keeps falling, falling towards another stone. He finds himself gravitating towards the firmament firmament that he remembers bringing into being. The stars like gems, the home, the masterpiece. He remembers cities built of diamond, decorated with rubies and emeralds and sapphires, citrine, rose quartz, amethyst. He tumbles towards that, and those memories are shattered. The paradise he sees is scarred. No longer are there just pure mountains, pure untouched wilderness, beautiful cities of stone that merge seamlessly with nature. Cities of tree, of wood, they're gone. He finds himself falling towards this gray scar on the landscape. It's stone, but not quite. He's not quite sure what this is. There's metal, but it's not the pure, glorious metals that he once worked with. These metals are coarse. They are poorly shaped. They are impure. And he crashes, crashes through a rooftop of tar and stone and flecks of wood. He crashes through pipes made of lead and of copper and of clay. And he lands in flesh. This flesh is dull and numb. This cold numbness seeps into him. It's cold against the face of this flesh. Something acrid hangs in the air, stinging the nose of this flesh. Something sticky is against the face of this flesh. There's this 
acrid, acidic sensation and taste in the mouth of this flesh. The limbs are heavy. They feel as if they themselves are made of stone and not flesh. There's no lightness to them. Somewhere within this flesh, there's a flickering, a dim flickering of a soul that had given up, but it hasn't left yet. But Brahman feels the stone of his being turn into mud. It breaks down into silt, and it spreads throughout this flesh, gathering in fingertips, gathering in the heart. The minerals of this silt bring new life to the flesh, as if it were the banks of the Nile and the flesh, a harvest of wheat. Suddenly, (gasps) the flesh gasps and inhales, and then immediately begins hacking and coughing. The acrid sting in the nostrils now spreads throughout this flesh's chest. There's this piercing, screeching noise assaulting the ears, and a duller thudding coming from somewhere, somewhere behind this flesh. What does Brahman do? Brahman would take a second to try to try to gather himself, try to examine his surroundings, kind of overwhelmed with the sensory onslaught of what just happened. Does he try to stand up? I think he would definitely try to stand up. He would he would immediately just start trying to move away. Just just put himself into momentum and, and start going. The limbs of this body don't want to move. There is a heaviness to them. It is with great effort he is able to haul them into positions that will help him get up. But the numbness just refuses to abate. The weight refuses to abate. The eyes of this flesh start stinging, tearing up so much that sight becomes almost impossible. The dull thudding continues. The piercing screech continues. There is a bright light a few feet away from Brahma. Flames a few feet away from him. Blue and orange, striking a piece of metal that is glowing red. Charred materials, the remains of something are around this glowing metal and this flame. This flame seems to come from a tube. This tube, it's hard to tell through all the water that is appearing in these eyes and the stinging. It is impossible to see exactly what is. This tube seems to be attached to something bright and blue, and the flame just keeps going and going and going. The screeching continues, the thudding continues, and there's this muffled noise that might be some sort of voice but Brahman's not sure. The room is littered with pieces of metal. There are wooden tables covered in pieces of metal. There's glass. Some things Brahman inherently recognizes as tools. Wait, that flame, that is a tool. That flame is a tool. The tank it's attached to is a tool. There are racks of tools in that cabinet. These memories, these thoughts just start appearing in Brahman's Brahman's thoughts. They're alien, but they're not. He knows them. He knows that that screeching is some sort of alarm. That thudding is, is imploring him to do something. What, what does that thudding want him? The door. That thudding wants him to go to the door. What does he do? I think Brahman would try to lumber his way over to the door. Just completely overwhelmed with what's happening right now, but needs to see more. Just after spending so much time years, eons, in isolation and torment. This does not seem like a fitting ending. This does not seem like a chapter that was supposed to happen. 
and he's just so confused, but he needs to find out more. Heavy step, heavy step. Every step heavier than the last. These legs, these feet, feel like they weigh a thousand pounds each. But somehow, he keeps making progress. He comes to this door. It's heavy. It's made of metal. He lifts the latch and hauls it to the side, and it slides open. Standing there is a young man, his clothing very brightly colored, his hair very brightly colored. He can't be more than maybe 20 years of age, although Brahman is a terrible judge of this. He never could quite get the mortal aging process down. He's, maybe this man is older, maybe this man is younger, but this man is yelling. God damn it, Lauren! Will you turn that shit off? We are trying to practice! I stare out, confused. What, what could he possibly mean by this? Who, what is Lauren? What the ever-loving fuck are you trying to do? Are you want to you burn this goddamn place down? He pushes past Brawlman, knocking him to the floor, and marches into the room, grabs the, the blue tube with the fire coming out of it, and twists a knob, turning the fire off. He then marches over to a sheet of glass, rimmed with metal, and pushes it out into the night, and a cold breeze flows into the room. That is the, like, third fucking time this week you have set off the goddamn alarms. Do we need to call the fucking fire department next time? He stands there waiting for an answer, anger written across his face. I just read his... His emotions, his mannerisms, just fascinated, but still not really sure what he is, in fact, telling me. Just seeing this explosion of human emotion come from, come from a person is just something that Brahman never thought he would experience again, and probably would, would begin to tear up. He just stares at Brahman for a moment. Fine, fuck it. And he climbs onto one of the tables, and he reaches up towards this strange white disc that seems to be attached to the ceiling. Or, no, it's not the ceiling. That's a support beam for this structure. Interesting. And he pulls the disc apart and pulls a small metal object out of it, and the shrieking ceases. He throws the small metal square onto the table. I don't give a shit if you want to kill yourself with this bullshit, but you need to stop fucking up our recording sessions. We've already talked about this. You have our goddamn schedule. Now keep it fucking quiet in here for the next few hours, or I'm calling the cops. And he storms out. Brahman wipes the tears from his eyes at such an amazing performance, such a beautiful demonstration of, of human feeling. It's truly beautiful. What does he do now? He's alone in this room filled with an artificer's materials. Someone in this room has been crafting, building things. I step up and I put my hand over the first creation that I can see. It's a, it's a piece of metal shaped into a bowl, but there's a crack in the middle. And it's decorated with small pieces of glass. It does not look like it's been finished, you you think that there are ways to improve it. And as you touch it, that little flickering flame of a soul in this flesh flares up just a little bit, and you feel love, love in that flare for the bowl that you're holding, tinged with a little bit of regret 
the regret of an artist that lost inspiration before completing a piece. I hold it close to myself. I press it against my chest. And at this point, just complete overflow of, of emotion, of feelings that Brahman didn't know were, doesn't know what they are, has never been capable of feeling something like this before. It's as almost as if he's sharing he's sharing this space with with the artist that created this and it's it's overwhelming through the walls he begins to hear the sound of music not any kind of music he's ever heard before but definitely music of some some sort it's fast it's aggressive there's some screaming but a part of him knows that that's part of the music it's intended to be there it's not screams of pain it's it feels like joy, but it sounds like anger. I move closer, and I put my ear up against the wall to, to hear it more. As you put your ear up to the wall, you begin making out the steady thump, 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 thump of the drums. And everything starts to fade away, except for that steady thump, 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 thump. And then you hear the sound of a hammer on top of that thump. Thump, ting, thump, ting. And your eyes close, and when you open them, you are standing in one of the great forges of paradise. You are surrounded by apprentices, hammering away, a chorus of hammers, each singing their own song. But somehow, all of those songs become one, one war march, a song of determination, a song of faith against the impossible. And you see these mortal apprentices crafting swords and spears and shields and armors of various shapes and colors, each one a master artisan in the making, each sword unique, each spear unique, each helmet decorated differently, each pauldron bearing the creative marks of its maker, every gauntlet crafted specifically for the hands that will wear them. You know that you are the master of this workshop, and that these are your apprentices. Looking around, you see one apprentice, a young woman, struggling. I approach her. She's hammering a spearhead. A beautiful, well-crafted spearhead, but you know something is lacking. There's something not quite right with it. It would be functional, but that's not all that she is going for. That's not all you want her to go for. Your students need to imbue a part of their soul into the weapons they create, and that is the part that is missing. She is weeping. Come forth, my child. Give me your creation. She picks it up, and you hear the metal, still hot, sizzle against her skin, and she kneels in front of you and holds it before her. I am sorry, my lord. I failed you. I just... I don't know why, but I just cannot... I cannot put myself into this as I would any other weapon. I implore you to find it within yourself. You, you're kind. You're the, the master artisans. You are a master of creation. You're a god in yourself. And I know that you have the capability. I, I ask you to look within yourself and do this. And Brahman would say it almost as like a command. Please, my lord, I beg of you, assist me. I am unworthy. After a moment, Brahman would pick up the spear and, and just kind of look at it and see if there's see if there's an obvious way that he can 
he can assist, see if there's an obvious way that he could improve this. He knows with his expertise in the lores bestowed upon him by the creator that he himself cannot do it, but he must have the assistance of the apprentice, for it is her work and it is her soul that needs to be a part of it. There's nothing I can do to make this happen for you. You have to look within yourself. You are the only one capable of making this happen. Do you understand? I do, Lord. Please, guide my hands. I reach out and I touch the apprentice's face. She continues to look at you expectantly, but more tears begin to well up in her eyes. Try again. Keep trying. You feel a small portion of your power flow in to her through her face, almost as if she is drawing on you somehow with her own faith, drawing forth from you the key to unlocking what she needs to do. And she turns, and she picks up her hammer, and she picks up the tongs, thrusting the spearhead back into the coals for a moment. She pulls it out, places it against the anvil, and starts hammering. And within minutes, you can tell that she has found what she needs. You close your eyes in satisfied approval. And when you open them again, you are in the cold studio. Your ears pressed up against the wall. The music has ended. You hear the shuffling and conversation of those who were making it through the wall. But you don't hear the music. You hear some thudding as if heavy things are being moved around. Brawlman stands and turns no longer intrigued by the music, but looking over the studio and realizes the tools might be crude, the materials might be impure, and far fallen from what he once had access to, but he knows that there is still hope there and that these things can craft great beauty. What does he do? I begin to look about the apartment, trying to find something that can can bring me closer to my new apprentice, this person that I'm sharing a space with, sharing a a mortal body with. The Forge Master's instincts lead you through racks of tools, toolboxes, piles of tools. On one workbench, under a dirty rag, next to some discarded crumbs of clay, Brawlman finds a hammer, and he lifts it up and looks at it. And he knows that with this hammer, he will make his next masterpiece. Oh, hello again, folks. I'd like to tell you about the Facebook group we run called White Wolf and Onyx Path RPGs Gameplay and Media. Have you ever wished you could have an easy way to find gameplay videos and podcasts or just media in general that deals with your favorite White Wolf role-playing games? Why have you ever wished you could find a forum to share gameplay that you have recorded? One that won't be drowned out by random posts and discussions, so that your media could give the attention you deserve. The group is specifically run with the sole intent of being a one-stop shop for people to view or share media involving the games we all love. We take thorough steps to ensure the page does not become cluttered and is easy to traverse. The group is already immense and continuing to rapidly grow, with new media being shared every day. Stop on by. We hope to see you there.